Welcome to Wednesday at 9 p.m. Season 1, Episode 15. On tonight's show, we look at wicked stories from the Ouija, crime-fighting ghosts, and why you should avoid sleepovers with New Age hippies. My name is Nick, and joining me are Aaron and Frank. Hello, hello. You know, as you said that, Nick, uh, I'm in a hotel room in California right now, and my room is adjacent to, like, it's a joined room. And the person in the other room keeps rattling the door, trying to enter my room. So, (laughs) spooky setup. I don't know. I don't know. But throughout this whole episode, the door is going to be rattling. No, I have no idea who it is. It's the FBI trying to stop us from exposing the truth about Ouija boards. They keep trying. I don't know who they think is on the other side, but very spooky setup for tonight. Uh, Very excited to hear what you have, Nick. Yeah, so we're going to be going over some interesting tales of people's involvements with Ouija boards. And and of course, as is uh, customary on the podcast, we will go into history. And actually, I do have a pretty interesting history here that we'll go into about, you know, capitalism. We love capitalism. (laughs) Capitalism? What? Yes, you'll see. But of course, first, we got to go through announcements as we said before frank is in california right now that's how dedicated i am to this show it's uh you know different time zone i'm supposed to be working right now working late but nothing gets in the way so please excuse my worse audio quality or maybe admire the audio quality of nick and aaron in tonight's episode instead yeah let's see there you go we'll get all the praise it's like the reverse of episode one Yes. Oh, you're right. It's making up for episode one. That's actually perfect. <laughs> yep. Perfectly balanced. As all things should be. Yes. And of course, we have shout outs. Shout out to, again, my girlfriend, Maddie, and my mom, who I'm sure will love this episode. All right. Uh, shout out to my girlfriend, Fallon, and uh, a shout out from uh, Breaking News, Troy, to Nick. Oh, no way. Yeah. He, he, just, he just told me that actually right now as we were talking. Gotcha. His spirit is with us. Wow. That's yeah, good. I was actually contacting him with the Ouija board. <laughs> Whoa. There well. is a story, actually, that we won't, that I don't know if we put in here, but it's in the book about cross country Ouija board communicating. Between the live people? Yes. That's Wait. cool. That's cool. Why are we using Discord when we could be doing that? I know. Very, it'd probably be very slow. So that'd be a lot of editing. Put together. (laughs) Well, I of course need to give a special shout out to someone who I recently realized Nick didn't realize was a real person. David Hoy, number one mega super fan from the start. Turns out he's a real guy. Kind of stalked him on LinkedIn. I asked him if he's okay with us calling his name out every episode. He didn't say no. So, what did he say? He re- responded to my other questions. Turns out I know, <laughs> I know his sister. How? What a bizarre small world. But that's all I'll say. Thank you, David Hoy, for listening. Um, I hope you feel obligated now to listen to every episode to the end of time and tell your not, friends. Yeah, tell your friends. Tell your sister. Yeah. Tell your family. We'll shout them out. Shout out to David guys, Hoy's you, family. You guys, there if you, you leave comments on our our podcast episodes <laughs> you may become you may dethrone david hoy is the number one super fan so 
All right. So we will get into the history of the Ouija board and in kind of what we know of it today. So, of course, for centuries, divination tools have been used by people from all over the world. You hear of crystal balls and dowsing rods, things like that. Those are all types of divination. And even in ancient Greece, the mathematician we all know and love, Pythagoras, was said to have a divination tool that was a table that rolled on wheels. And someone would place their hands on the table and it rolled towards signs and symbols that were on the table. Really? You know, it's funny how you get like a whitewashed history of it, just like, you know, him being a super early mathematician. But the parts that don't fit into, you know, like textbook math don't get told. That's very interesting. I never knew that. Also, sorry, I did forget to mention this. The material for, for this episode is coming from a book by an author that Frank and I know, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, along with Rick Fisher. He helped to write this. And she is a in the space, a very well-known paranormal researcher. Other podcasts have gone over her work. And we'll, of course, we'll have uh, a link to the book in the show notes. If you're interested, it's available on Kindle. And I think it was hardcover, but I don't remember. That means we'll even be able to put an actual book preview in the show notes where you can click mm-hmm. through the pages. And the book is titled Ouija Gone Wild Shocking True Stories. <laughs> that's where that's the material. Nice. Anyway, so. Yeah, the divination has been around for a long time. And the planchette, which is the uh, thing that gets moved around on a Ouija board, apparently appeared in Europe around 1853. And talking boards themselves, aka Ouija boards, have been documented as early as 1886, but like in homes, not like commercially. That was until a Maryland man named Charles W. Kennard along with four other men, Harry Rusk, Colonel Washington Bowie, William Maupin, and John Green, founded, they kind of all got together, they all knew each other, but I guess Kennard, Charles Kennard, founded the Kennard Novelty Company, strangely enough, on October 30th, 1890, in Baltimore. And huh. they manufactured toys, and amusement devices. So they were a typical like industrial revolution company, but they made toys. And then in February of 1891, so just a few months later, Elijah Bond filed a patent for the Ouija board and assigned it to Kennard and Maupin. And Bond, I think, um, was associated with the men I forget in what capacity, but he knew he knew them. And the trademark for Ouija was also given to the company. So they had the patent and the trademark for the board. And after getting that trademark, Kennard filed another patent for an improved, an improved quote talking board that was granted later in 1891 in November. And we're kind of in that time of the spiritualist movement, late 1800s, early 1900s. So Ouija sales just skyrocketed. Leadership of the company changed a few times. Kennard, Maupin, and Green eventually left the company 
And by March 1892, so the company wasn't even two years old yet, three people left, but a man named William Fold supervised the company, but it was still under the control of Colonel Bowie. It was renamed to the Ouija Novelty Company, and under William Fold, there were the company moved very aggressively against competitors and filed a lot of infringement lawsuits. <laughs> so very, very um, like monopolistic behavior. Very litigious. Yes. And funny enough, Charles Kennard even became a target when he formed his own company again and came out with a talking board named the Volo, but Fold <laughs> sued him <laughs> as well. Damn. So this the Ouija board's just like a piece of like reinforced cardboard with letters on it. Correct? Basically, yeah. It might have been it so, might have been wood back then, but I don't know. Gotcha. So that's crazy that you just patent letters on <laughs> on a on a block. <laughs> maybe it will, with, the, with maybe, another little piece. Maybe the use of it. And like how it's used was the patent. Maybe. And if people are selling a similar thing with the in like same use, yeah, maybe there are some crazy patents. Like someone patented like using the laser pointer to play with your cat. That that's what? a patent. Yep. So maybe it's not as far fetched then. <laughs> yeah, patent law is crazy. Yeah. So Nick, mm -hmm. am I understanding what you're saying? So. They, these guys were the first to kind of like, they, market they commercialized. This. Yeah, they commercialized. They, were, they weren't, this was kind of something that was just being used and people were making their own like versions of this in the years yeah, past or did they kind of, yeah, a lot it? of it was, a lot of it was like home made or like, if you knew about it, if you were into spiritualism, you probably had one or made something like one. It, it wasn't, it's probably not the typical thing we think of. That comes a little bit later. But yeah, so it evolved yeah, over time. Yeah. The, don't get me wrong. The five men that started that initial company, they were really interested in talking boards. So I think they just wanted to make a business out of it. Interesting. I wonder, I'm sure it's not documented because, you know, how would it be? But who was the first person to kind of try that sort of thing of spirit communication with like trying to get them to, to speak by directing hands or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. I wonder where that really started. I mean, probably centuries ago, right? Cause divination was least, a thing yeah. way, way back in BC times. So, and why do you think I don't this, know. this picked up so much in that time period, like the late 1800s? that that rise of spiritualism right because it seems like we go through waves was, um, i believe one of the main reasons was because it was kind of after not not you know directly after but the civil war happened and a lot of people were still like stricken with grief so they wanted to try to contact their dead relatives that died in the civil war mm. i think I've, i feel i think i've heard that before where I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Of I mean, one of the reasons of the spiritualism movement that happened in the late 19th and early 20th century. I guess that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm sure every single person would know many family members who died. Sometimes yeah. people, even family members dying on opposite sides. And yeah, that, that's 
isn't that the bloodiest American war ever? Yep. And the so most I can imagine, like, I believe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That it would it would cause the surge of. I hope there's something on the other side. I know. It was, and at the time, you know, people aren't. I don't think psychology is where it is right now either. So people also could have had some certain issues and we'll see <laughs> situations of that coming up, but going more into the history still, cause we're not in present time yet. Um, like I said, fold was ruthless and to kind of go back a little bit in 1898, Bowie and Rusk assigned the company to Fold and his brother Isaac for three years. They were going to have it for three years. And then in 1901, the brothers ended up splitting up. And Isaac tried to make his own boards and sell them. But Fold, his brother, sued him. Oh, my and God. That, and, and he eventually was just basically pushed out of the talking board business. And the two families were split for generations because of this so how lucrative of a business was making these boards we'll get into that because like it's got to be really good if you're suing your family <laughs> so it'd be cheap to make right <laughs> so well in 1919 fold was assigned all outstanding rights to the ouija and his power was now consolidated he had the market in his palm and then in 1920, Fold disclosed that he had earned $3 million in profits since he had, since, you know, running the whole business. And then I did a quick inflation calculation because 1920 is available on like a lot of the government websites. That's the equivalent of, equivalent of $47,724,248.70 oh in August 2023 dollars. Wow. So. Profit was $47.7 million in a time where cost of living wasn't that high. Because, you know, the roaring 20s, and we're not quite in the Depression. And so between 1919 and 1927, Fold filed even more trademarks and patents. He trademarked the term Ouija to protect how it was uh, pronounced. And then he launched a second line of cheaper boards called the Egyptian Luck and the Hindu Luck to thwart competition. And he even launched Ouija jewelry and a Ouija oil to treat rheumatism. What? Now, is there any, are there any reports of how he felt about his product? Like whether he was like, was he a really fervent believer in it or was that he, not he didn't clear? like just he didn't just come out of nowhere he did work at the company before yeah. he be, like owned it but i don't know if he believed in the board i guess he believed in uh believed in the money believed in its, behind in, the board. in the business <laughs> yeah yeah and interesting then, so you might be wondering why between 1919 and 1927 did he file the patents why did why did he stop well in 1927, Fold, after attempting to repair a flagpole on the roof of his three-story building, fell. And he only suffered moderate injuries, luckily. He lived, but a broken rib ended up piercing his heart, and 
when he was on his way to the hospital and at the age of 54 died. A freak so, accident, if you will. Yes. And so his uh, children, Catherine Bowie and William Andrew Fold. Actually, that might just be a typo. I think it was just Andrew Fold. Uh, took over the company and ran it until the younger brother, Hubert Fold, took the reins as president of what was now called William Fold, Inc. So it was no longer the Ouija Novelty Company. It was William Fold, Inc. And then in 1939, a, f- a patent was filed for the design of what we know as the Ouija board today. In the 19... 19- uh, yeah. In 1966, rather, sorry, an ups- during an upswing in sales, the Fold sold the company and all of its assets to Parker Brothers, who yes, was bro. a game and toy manufacturer. General Mills then acquired Parker Brothers in 1968, merged it with a subsidiary called Kenner in 1985, which created Kenner Parker Toys Incorporated. And then Tonka acquired the company in 1987. And then eventually Tonka and Parker Brothers in 1991 were bought by Hasbro, which now to this day still holds the rights for the Ouija board. Which Aaron has, right? No, I have a I have a piece of wood as a decoration from uh, Home Goods. Wait, you have a no. Ouija decorated piece of wood from Home Goods? Yeah, I can send you a picture and we can maybe include it in the show notes. Well, isn't that just it half that- of a Ouija board? Don't you just need a little thing to slide around? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't have need one. Need a plan won't let me get one. I guess the question to Nick, maybe he'll co- cover this. Can you use any items as a, a planchette? Any, inter- any interesting? Unexpected. Items. Oh, Don't listen as a, to as a planchette, maybe not, but as a board, yes. People still make their own boards out of like pizza boxes and things like that. I don't know about a planchette though. Probably you if you can make Aaron, a, if you can is, make a board. Yeah, I'm sure yours is operative, Aaron. <laughs> well, yeah, don't I'm use sure. It. I yeah. won't. But to kind of round out the history, that that kind of rounds out the history. Hasbro still owns it, but funny enough, the patent on talking boards actually expired back in 1908. However, Ouija is still trademarked. Oh. So that's why. And before we get into the stories, because this is something that people who don't believe in what happens when people use a Ouija board, the ideomotor effect is describes the unconscious motions that are prompted by strong emotions. So basically people think that this is the driving force behind things such as automatic writing, dowsing, Ouija board communication, and other physical forms of spirit contact. So people think there are strong emotions of the people using these tools, and those strong emotions lead to unconscious movements in the body, leading it to whatever tool you're using to move in the way you would you want it to move kind of what do you think about that i don't know if that's jump putting the uh jumping ahead but well i mean i'm sure in some cases people do move it on their own i don't deny that but some of the stories here it's like some i can definitely see 
maybe the people were had some issues and they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. What do you mean by that? That's interesting. But other ones, it's when things happen after using the board. How did, you know. Like a cursed hunt. A what? A cursed hunt. Yeah. Phasmophobia. Yes. What is that? You used a Ouija board in Phasmophobia and then it immediately starts like a really hard or like scary hunt. It's a longer, faster hunt. Yeah. Hunt. I thought you were saying hun, like the ancient huns. Like some of the hun. That'd be, I mean, that'd yeah, be scary. Yeah, cursed hun spirit. Yeah, that would be scary. So now we will get into some of the stories now that the history behind the commercialization and kind of advertising of the Ouija board is set. Very American so, story. Yeah, this is, I have no, and all the stories in here also, I believe, are mostly of Americans. I don't know of any other situations in Europe or Asia or Africa, because shamanism is very prevalent there. In and France, animism. I think they actually have their own version of the Ouija board. Okay, well, we don't it's like the, the French. Well, it's the the wee Ouija board. <sighs> I think I'm going to mute Aaron's entire track and post. <laughs> 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 no, that was good. All right. it, it came to me. So <laughs> it came to you. You channeled it. Sorry. He, sorry, he uh, automatic the, the, automatic the joking. Automatic joking. <laughs> no joking, not choking. Joking. No. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. <laughs> so on to our first story of the night. So a woman named Carol Elvaker thought the board connected her to God. And messages she received came from him. So this is what I mean by people might not be in the right mind and they're going to they're going to see or on the board what they want to see. So on February 11th, 2001, Carol and her daughter, Tammy, who was 34 and Tammy's two daughters, aged 10 and 15. Believed that the board told her that Tammy's husband, Brian was evil and must die. This happened during a board session with the four of them. Wait, the husband was there too? No, no, no. It was the it was oh. Tammy, <laughs> Carol, and Tammy's two daughters who were 10 and 15. Okay. It was ascertained through the board that the 10-year-old girl was also evil. And then while the females played with the board and Brian slept in the next room, Elvaker grabbed a large kitchen knife and stabbed Brian in the chest. Oh my god, what the what? hell? I also, I will say, just at the start, because now that's, I should have said, some of these stories are kind of gruesome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, if, so you've been warned, for the, for the rest of these, some can get a bit dicey. Viewer discretion is advised. Thank you. So... Brian, it was it was said that Brian begged for help, but was just allowed to bleed to death. And no one else helped him. Nope. Tammy took the knife from her mother and hid it. The two women and the girls got into Tammy's car and fled the scene. They went up some interstate in I think Tulsa, it said, which I think is in Ohio, Oklahoma, I thought. Is it Tulsa, Oklahoma? Maybe one of the O states. But um, it is Oklahoma city yeah. in Oklahoma. Okay, nice. So this was in Oklahoma, and then 
Carol deliberately rammed the car into a highway sign near Chandler in an apparent attempt to kill everyone in the vehicle, including herself. She broke both of her ankles in the crash, but luckily the other occupants were only slightly injured. She attempted to push the 15-year-old daughter into oncoming traffic, but was not successful, thankfully. And she ripped off all of her clothes, jumped the highway median barrier, and ran into the woods where the authorities later found her. With two broken ankles? With two broken ankles. Oh my god. What year was this? 2001. Early winter, winter of 2001. She was charged with first degree murder, and Tammy was charged with ex- uh, an accessory to murder. And apparently, so this is how you know there were some problems with Carol Elvaker. Authorities came to uh, understand that she once attempted to kidnap Brian's 10 year old nephew because he also was evil and had to die. But the the boy's mother came home in time and stopped her from kidnapping Brian's 10-year-old nephew. However, sadly, uh, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was ordered to be institutionalized. And the accessory to murder charge that was against Tammy was dropped in exchange for a guilty plea to three counts of child neglect, but she was only sentenced to one year in prison. I'm remembering now where last episode Nick said on the topic of people not getting sentences as long as they should. Yeah, I guess her being institutionalized, the mother makes sense. But one year in prison for helping your mom kill your husband. One year. So the let me just make sure I have this straight. So she was an accessory to murder, but then that was dropped. So initially accessory to murder because she hid the weapon. It's because, yeah, so she, well, she was doing the board session with her mom and she didn't like, she knew that her mom was going to do this. She didn't attempt to stop her. Like she knew she was going to stab him and then she took the knife and hit it. Okay. So that charge was dropped and she was charged with three counts of child neglect, which I guess only accounts to one year in prison in Oklahoma in 2001. So what a great, wow. What a, what a starting off with a bang. And there are another, this, all these other chunk of stories that we'll get into to start are seemingly normal people who get too caught up in the board and do some unspeakable things. So our second story follows a woman named Nellie Hurd who thought her second husband, Herbert, was acting strangely and even potentially having an affair. Now, I don't know what year this was in. I don't believe it said, but she asked her Ouija board if he was having an affair and where do you think the planchette swung to? Yes. yes. Maybe. There's no maybe <laughs> on the board. Isn't there yes, no, and there's goodbye. like a middle option? It's oh. goodbye. Is it? I think so. Okay. So... Upon hearing this, Nellie became angry and, by my standards, deranged. With the help of her adult (laughs) daughter, Bertha, from her first marriage, Nellie attacked Herbert, chained him to a bed, and tortured him. 
They beat him with a wire whip, burned his feet with a hot poker, and stabbed him with a dagger. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> and after weeks of abuse and near starvation, Herbert begged with his wife and stepdaughter just to kill him. He ended up giving in and signed a, quote, confession that he was having an affair with a neighbor and intended to give her $15,000. Luckily, Herbert managed to escape the basement, but his freedom was short-lived. The women captured him again and returned him to his chains. But finally, he freed himself, and in a rage of revenge, he killed Nellie. I believe he shot her. I mean... Funny enough, he was arrested and charged with murder, but luckily, he was released and all charges were dropped. No, I don't I mean, know what happened, what happened to Bertha, because she was tortured <laughs> also by her. So I don't know if she suffered any consequences, but Nellie luckily was shot and killed. Luckily, luckily she was <laughs> she tortured her husband. Nick but, just given us but these the board said stories. that yeah. he had an affair. Yeah, I know. No, the board told me. It's the classic, you know, the devil made me do it sort of thing. No, it's the classic girlfriend getting upset because she dreamt that the boyfriend <laughs> was cheating on her. <laughs> yeah, and and him, just to the, take just to to the, the extreme. extreme. Yeah. yeah. Again, I don't know what year this was because some of some a lot of these stories, funny enough, kind of happened in the 1920s. Really? Or like early 1900s, which I thought was interesting, but I don't know what year this one happened in. I guess you can make um, kind of you can make some guesses based on the names, right? Like Bertha, you don't hear that name. Yeah. Nelly, the, the fire poker. That's not. I mean, people still use them nowadays, but I feel like it was a lot more common back in the day. But the fifteen thousand yeah. dollars, who knows? Right, because that could have I mean, been a lot, or just still a lot. But that's that's way a lot. Obviously, I mean, this goes without saying, but that's horrible. That's disturbing. Yes, horrible. This, what. Wow. Very just awful. And this one, this one is, this one's really sad, but um, Ella Crawford in 1912, um, her husband passed away three years prior and she was left to raise her nine-year-old adopted daughter, Eleanor, by herself. Oh, goodness. She kind of became used to an easy lifestyle and people always taking care of her. Now her husband was gone. She had to fend for herself. And feeling as she was out of options, she turned to spiritualism. Again, it was that time uh, where spiritualism was on the rise. She gave herself over completely to what the board said. Anything the board told her to do, she had to follow it. And approximately one year after delving into spiritualism, she awoke disturbed by the gloomy future that the board predicted for her daughter and her. Ella got a hatchet she kept in the house and went to and went to fetch Eleanor for a bath. She grabbed Eleanor or sorry, Ella instructed her. So Ella's the just to be clear, Ella's the mom. Eleanor's the daughter. Ella instructed Eleanor to hurry and get into the tub, which then uh, she grabbed Eleanor, held her underwater. She was kicking and flailing and she and she ended up drowning. She pulled out her daughter's corpse from the tub, dried and dressed it in her funerary clothing, and laid her on a lounge. She reached for the hatchet, 
and began striking herself in the head in an attempt to end her own life, but was not successful. She was arrested and tried for murder, but of course, the court, the court found her insane and she was committed to a mental facility where after only a year, she was reevaluated, found to be well, and was released. Wow. So she murdered her daughter. And then one year, I'm fine. Totally set free. Now, I don't know if this was in the book, but did, were there any other incidents of her like going crazy after that? Nope. Not, not that it's in the book. Hmm. I mean, you could maybe look up Ella Crawford's, you know, killing daughter on Google and see if you find something. But this, this is a pretty old account, right? 1912 is when all in like 1912, 1913 is kind of when all this happened. Yeah. So, so Nick, pre- pretty awful stuff. Let's, I guess at this point, the, the, the few stories you've shared so far, what do you think is going on here? What role do you think the Ouija board is playing? Is it just a tool I for so. deranged people to justify their own actions? Or is it like, you know, in some more of these insidious? instances, in some of these instances, I don't think it's like some trickster spirit doing things. I think it is just really down in the dumps people with pre-existing problems that are turning to a popular medium at the time. No pun intended. Get it? Medium. Spiritual. Okay. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> Sorry. That was good. Um, and I think they just wanted to hear what they wanted to hear coming from the spirits. So like what I said before, did the ideomotor effect influence these people? Probably. Because there was no... In some of the stories later, we'll get into some other, some more unexplained things that happen after using the board. This is just they used the board, they heard what they wanted to hear, and then they acted in grotesque ways towards the people that they asked the board about. Wow. So, I mean, I'm sure like things like this, it's like you can read anything into, right, a Ouija board, you can say. Is my husband cheating on me and should I brutally torture and kill him? Oh, my. Oh, what? My hand's going towards. Yes. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like. There's it's not like they're going and saying. Tell me about my husband. And it's like spelling yes. out long messages. It's just like they're coming in with that. That's scary. I think I they're, mean, they're looking for answers and they're they're creating the answers for them through the lens that a spirit's telling them. That's the wild. Answer. I'd like to think that and, most people wouldn't be that easily swayed, but like, well, Frank, let me tell you about a woman named Dorothea. Please do. In Arizona in 1931, Ernest Turley and his wife, Dorothea had just moved from California with their children, Maddie and David. Maddie's a daughter and David is uh, their son. So Dorothea found cowboys to be very romantic and intriguing. And she eventually caught the eye of a neighbor of theirs who was a cowboy. She fell in love with him and wanted to nothing more than to be with him. So naturally, she turned to the Ouija board for a solution. She sat at the board with her daughter, Maddie, who at the time was 15, and the planchette spelled out, quote, Daddy must die. Spelled out. 
Yeah. So like D A D D Y. Oh man. Okay. It's not just like, should daddy die? Yes. But like spelling out. Wow. So it instructed that Ernest should die at the hands of his daughter, Maddie and Dorothea should get a promise from Maddie to do the deed. So Dorothea could marry her handsome cowboy lover. On her son, David's birthday, Dorothea went into town with him to purchase a few things for the occasion. But Maddie promised her mom that she would carry out the task. Her father was in the family barn. She entered and approached him from behind, holding a shotgun. She raised her weapon and for a second lost the courage to do it. But thinking of disappointing her mother, determination overwhelmed her, and she knew she had to do this. She lifted the gun and shot her father. She cried that it was an accident and that she tripped and the gun fired. And Ernest was alive when he got to the hospital and he affirmed and was adamant that it was an accident. However, officials were not convinced as the details did not line up to support that it was an accident. Maddie was placed under arrest and her father died a few days later from the injuries. Maddie confessed to the police that she had been given orders through the Ouija board to murder her father so her mother could be with the cowboy. Maddie was convinced and sentenced to uh, six years at a convent, but was released <laughs> only after serving three years. And Dorothea was sentenced to 10 years to life and was released only after two years. So if that doesn't tell you something. Wow. I, <laughs> man, I didn't realize how all of the all these stories involve someone being murdered and the person, except I guess for Nelly, the person who was responsible for it barely served any jail time. So but we'll get into some more. We're going to get into some kind of uh, this little next little sections, more just like interesting little like fun things. There are a couple scenarios, actually, where the board is used to catch criminals. What? People use the board. There is a story uh, in the book about a bootlegger during Prohibition being caught with illegal alcohol due to someone using a Ouija board, as well as finding a limo thief. And again, this all happened around the 1920s. What that does that have any details about like the questions posed or the answers they got or is that oh, like the detail? Yes, but to save on time, I'm not telling the full story. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. But if you want like to, if you want to look and read into all the stories that we talk about in more detail, I encourage you to buy the book. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a great author. She's fun. She does a lot of other books. There's another book of hers that Frank and I are familiar with that was part of a part in this book. We didn't talk about it. Well, we'll get there though. But yeah, that's a good if you're way interested in, if you're interested in some of these stories, I encourage you to buy the book. And again, kind of on this lighthearted uh, angle, people obviously, of course, ask the Ouija board about lottery numbers and buried treasure. And in, again, 1920 in Elk Rapids, Michigan, two 17-year-old girls were looking for treasure near the crow's nest in January. So this is January, Michigan. Very dangerous kind of time to be out and about. And 
the Ouija board told them where to find treasure, so they went out to look for it. And I guess this isn't lighthearted, but <laughs> the message the message actually is believed to have cost the girls their lives because after they went out to look for the treasure, search parties could find no trace of them, and overnight temperatures had reached ten below zero. And the fate of the girls is unknown. Oh man, they're going to say they found treasure. (laughs) No. So lighthearted in the sense that this isn't telling someone to go kill someone, but now we're going into the kind of the, the trickster part. Oh yeah, there's treasure here. Go out and find it. And Aaron, were you going to say something before I get into the next treasure situation? Did they ever find treasure there? Or like, how did they know like what the Ouija board told these girls? Like, did they write it down or something? Uh, I don't know. Maybe there are others there at the time. Unsure. You know, this one, though. This oh, next sorry. story gives a, it's a little more uh, detailed about like where to go, what he was doing, other people were involved. So a few months later, still in 1920, Albert Anton of Effington, Illinois, was lured by the Ouija, some you know, to his death, while looking for treasure. So in April 1920, the Ouija board was giving him messages, giving the exact location of treasure on the side of a hill, and so he began digging a cave. Heavy rain fell, and his friends warned him of a potential cave-in. He agreed that it was dangerous and ended up uh, quitting digging for the night. But to console himself, he decided to talk with the board and asked is there gold buried here it answered yes he asks where (laughs) the ouija board responded 18 feet from where you are now digging albert anton didn't want to wait so he went back out into the storm went to the cave and started digging again unsurprisingly the wet and soft walls of the cave collapsed and buried him alive where he suffocated before any help arrived he ended up leaving behind a wife and six children and no treasure was ever found six children so they kept digging and didn't find anything the, the my the implication of no treasure was ever found is they dug where it said to dig and there was nothing hmm see what gets me with these stories like i i get the ouija board seems to have some effect on your mental state but like if there's treasure buried there chances are nobody else is looking for it per se um so why not just like wait out the rain yeah i don't know you didn't want to wait i I mean i guess greed i guess there was um there's another story. Now we're off of treasure, but there is another story in the book that I was familiar with. And Frank, you might remember it too, of six U.S. Army intelligence analysts deserting their posts because the Ouija board told them to. You remember that no, story? No, I have no recollection of this. Oh, well, again, this is, if you're interested, uh, find the book. And it's a good story. It's a pretty good story. And so... All that we've kind of heard right now, Rosemary dubs this thing Ouija mania, where people are receiving messages from a Ouija board 
and believe them to be real, like from a person or like an entity, I guess, or they take exactly what it says literally, like, is my husband cheating? Yes. Okay. He must be cheating. And so again, we, we trigger warning and viewer discretion advised at the beginning. A prime example of this was a man asked the board if he should commit suicide. The board said yes. And so he shot himself in the head. But luckily, the wound was not fatal. And, he, and from the reports of that account, he was expected to live. Damn. Well, how do you, you expected to live? Well, you can have a complication during any kind of medical emergency. Okay, but did he live? I don't know. That's sad. I'm that, going, I'm going off know. of the reports from the book. I didn't, I knew this, you know, there was a lot of content here. I didn't want to bog down with every single detail. Even though some, maybe I did in some stories. <laughs> now we will start getting into some of the darker stories where more unexplained things are happening. Preheat or enter. <laughs> I'm getting spooked out. Right? My room is pitch black now. I look up, I'm like, wait a minute. The sun's gone. So the case that we're going to go over now is actually what the exorcist is based on. The original. Because it was a book and then it became a movie, like in the 70s. So this is what that, this is the basis for that. So this, and most of these are pseudonyms, a lot of those names in here about the people affected. So Robbie Doe is the boy who we'll be talking about. He was born in 1935 in a suburb in Cottage City, Maryland. His father was a lapsed Catholic, which I guess just means not like non-practicing. Yeah. Yeah. So raised, but not practicing. Right. And his mother was uh, Lutheran and they were born in St. Louis and he was baptized Lutheran. He was an only child of a somewhat dysfunctional family and had a somewhat troublesome childhood. We have no details of that in the story. But in January of 1949, when Robbie was 13, his family was disturbed by scratching sounds coming from the ceilings and the walls of their house. Thinking it was just mice, they called an exterminator and there were no sign of rodents anywhere. And the scratching didn't end, but it ended up becoming louder. And then noises that sounded like someone walking about in squeaky shoes were heard in the hall. Dishes and furniture moved for no evident reason. And then Robbie started to get attacked. His bed shook so hard he couldn't sleep. And his bed sheets were ripped off numerous times. And once he was pulled to the floor when trying to hold on to them. Robbie's parents connected what was happening to the recent death of his aunt, Aunt Tilly, who was a spiritualist and potentially interested Robbie in the supernatural and paranormal. So his parents were convinced that an evil spirit was behind the disturbances, and they appealed to their Lutheran minister, uh, Reverend Schultz. He prayed with Robbie and his parents in their home and with Robbie when he was alone. And they let, he led prayers for Robbie at church. So Reverend Scholes ordered whatever possessed him to leave the boy in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You know, the typical, typical business. But the affliction continued. 
Robbie was tormented by weird noises, objects moving around all day and night. And Schultz offered to let Robbie spend a night in his house, and his parents agreed. Robbie and the Reverend went retired to the bedroom while the Reverend's wife was in a guest room. And after they said goodnight, Robbie's bed began creaking. The Reverend grasped the bed and felt it vibrating rapidly, but Robbie was wide awake, lying completely still in the bed. He suggested that Robbie sleep in an armchair while the Reverend kept an eye on him from the bed. But the chair began to move, scooting back several inches, and the Reverend said to Robbie to raise his legs so he could put his full weight on the chair, but it didn't stop the chair from slamming into the wall. The chair then turned in slow motion and dropped Robbie, who was not hurt, onto the floor. It looked like Robbie was in a trance because he didn't make any effort to move out of the chair, even though it was moving really slowly. So the Reverend persuaded Robbie's parents to take him to a mental health clinic. And from February 28th to March 3rd, Robbie was kept in Georgetown Medical Hospital, where he underwent medical and psychological evaluation. He began to act wildly, and according to some reports, the message, go to St. Louis, appeared scratched on his skin in blood-red letters. Thinking that the trip could be good, though, uh, the family went to St. Louis and stayed with some relatives, but there were some family, you know, divides about what to do, because some were Catholic, some were Lutheran, at least in a religious uh, aspect of what to do. And Frank, this is for you. The Jesuits ended up getting consulted. Good. Father Raymond Bishop came to the house to bless Robbie, but quickly saw that the situation was very bad. He thought there was a troubling and actual presence of demons. And Father Bishop, so this is confusing because Father Bishop, he's not a bishop. He's just that's funny. (laughs) Father Bishop consulted Father William Bodern, who saw the who saw Robbie's condition and with Father Bishop went to Archbishop Joseph Ritter, requested an exorcism, and it was eventually granted. Now, real quick, I know people probably from media think, you know, exorcisms are they're not very common. It is you go to you do everything first, except that you do every single option first. So the exorcism began on March 6th. March 16th at his relative's home on, you guessed it, Roanoke Drive. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And Robbie acted like someone suffering from a full demonic possession. He coughed up phlegm. He drooled in a steady stream. Bloody welts and scratches mysteriously appeared on his body. He cursed, vomited, spit, urinated, and made physical attacks on the exorcists, exhibiting amazing strength. He appeared to be cured, but then relapsed into more violent behavior and when the episodes were over he had no recall of what happened Bodern took robbie to the alexian brothers hospital on march 21st and was placed in a security ward where they kept doing the exorcism in secret for several weeks and then on april 1st robbie was taken to the saint francis xavier church to be baptized as a catholic but on the way to the church robbie went berserk and Bodern didn't let him enter because he didn't want him to desecrate the grounds of the church. He was instead just brought to the rectory, and despite his vomiting of blood and mucus, and the struggling and the shouting of obscenities, 
The baptism proceeded and eventually followed by, was followed by a successful communion. After several weeks of progress and relapse, Robbie's behavior started to improve. And then the turning point came when apparently Robbie had a dream of a fierce sword-bearing angel who made snarling demons vanish. And in April, the exorcism was deemed a success. Robbie returned to a normal life in Maryland. His father became a devoted Catholic again, and his mother converted to Catholicism from uh, the Lutheran Church. And so two people, Mark Travinsky, or yeah, Travinsky, actually, sorry, who is a publisher of Strange Magazine, announced that research done by another man named Mark, Mark Op, uh, I should have uh, prepped this, Mark Op, Opsisnik, Opsasnik. Uh, so the two Marks <laughs> did research and revealed that Robbie actually had never been possessed and his exorcism was unnecessary. And they stated that he did not meet the three criteria set by the Catholic Church for a possession, which was prophecy, speaking in foreign languages, and supernormal strength. They argued that the Latin Robbie spoke just mimicked the priests and his physical assaults. He was, quote, no Mike Tyson. <laughs> so that's the story behind that was the basis for the exorcist. Well, that's that's a lot to unpack. Yes, that was a lot. But I have thoughts. Aaron, yeah. what about you first? Uh, I guess this isn't as much of a thought as how does this tie in with Ouija boards? I, I think it was towards the beginning, maybe, that you'd mentioned something. So, yeah, Robbie... And his aunt got, or it's thought that Robbie's aunt may have gotten him into like the paranormal and could have used a Ouija board with him. This is more of just talking the aftermath uh, of potentially using Ouija boards, potentially. Or, but this was also just this was a chapter in the story of talking about I forget what the name of it was, but it was like in media mm -hmm. how the Ouija board is depicted and. I don't, I never watched The Exorcist, but it, she just wanted to give the background for what is what The Exorcist was based on. Because she mentions, she talks about the author hearing about this, the author of The Exorcist book reading about the story of reading about this and then writing the book. And of course, in, in like media like that, it gets super sensationalized and hyperbolized. Okay. <laughs> this is a lot, Nick. I know. Yeah, Nick's dropping the 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 dense dark stuff on us, dense and dark. But I recently thought I was going to do an episode on another case of potential possession, Annalise McKell, and I stopped because it was just too dark and too controversial as to what really happened? Who was at fault? And uh, this story has a lot of similar hallmarks in that it's like, no matter what, whether you take the religious angle or not, can you imagine going through that? Like if that's your child or forget that, can you imagine being the child in that situation? Whether it's um, no. right, some, oftentimes these sorts of cases are dismissed and they say, well, it's not, it's not possession that's that doesn't exist it's this insanity that has a religious aspect 
And there's like some term for it where it's like, yeah, people who were raised in religious backgrounds and have problems, they like that religiousness comes out in their schizophrenia, right? So it's always a debate between like, is it like a schizophrenic person who was also who was religious and therefore they're like drawing on that? Or is it, yeah, they're schizophrenic because it's a religious issue. You know, like like a actual Which spiritual came first, obsession. Chicken or the egg? Exactly, right? So it's yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean I will say that in, again in the in the book, the the two those two marks that did the research, they also said that, or maybe it wasn't them, but someone mentioned that, you know. Robbie was also kind of a troublesome kid, so maybe this was a not a ploy or i don't I don't think he was trying to like you know contrive to make them think he's possessed, but it was said that maybe he wanted like attention and things like that, but this is a lot for that, and one person I forget the name of the individual who said it, but he said that he doesn't. The person said that he doesn't think all of this could be attributed to mental illness alone. Yeah, I think. Especially that, uh, I believe it's a dermography when letters appear on the skin. Yeah, that sounds right. So. Very creepy. Yeah. I mean, it's a question of, um, does it even matter whether a Ouija board can, does, does allow for communication between spirits? If it still can convince people that it is actually communication with spirits, you know what I mean? Like, is there that much difference between someone using a Ouija board and convincing themselves to kill their husband versus using a Ouija board and an actual spirit convincing them to kill their husband? If it has yeah. that effect, either way, it's still very dangerous, you know? So that was kind of our. That was probably our dense, like you said, that was our densest story. There were a lot of details there because that's it's very well documented. Yeah, you pretty it, much just summarized the movie. Exactly, right? So there's there is um we're gonna get into kind of kind of some. <laughs> we're gonna get into some misconceptions about the board, according to Rosemary. So apparently. Not apparently, this did happen, but in 1986, a film titled Witchboard was released. And a lot of the, you know, misconstrusions about the board came from that movie. Movie Again, this is according to Rosemary. And they include a person using the board can become possessed and kill people. Every board has its dominant, has its own dominant spirit attached. Spirits are lousy spellers and often lie. I don't know about that. The spirits lie all the time, but never use the board alone. Apparently it's okay to, and the planchette spins around when the spirit is angry. Those are apparently all misconceptions about using a Ouija board. So stuff that was added in like media depictions. Yes. And don't come from actual accounts of people using it. Yeah. Except I don't, I don't buy the lying part. <laughs> I don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> It is um, interesting, right? Like you, you can't just depict like an already spooky thing. You have to add stuff like the planchet, the the room, the lights flicker, the the planchet spins around, blood oozes from the walls, you know. Yeah, and the walls ooze green slime. No, <laughs> <laughs> SpongeBob reference for all you kids out there. Who was flickering the lights? <laughs> oh, 
I, I don't think I put it in here. There is a Nosferatu reference in, in here. Oh, yeah, you told me vampires come up. <laughs> that's the very last story. Oh, that's not Nosferatu. This is separate. No, there's a, se- yeah, there's a separate Nosferatu. <laughs> wow. You but went deep. We're going to do some kind of shorter stories that are devil related. So Satan himself. Fun. Hey, I had to read all this. So we're hey, gonna, we have to listen to all this. That is true. I, you know, I, I, I know. The light on. I know. It's, yes, I know. Frank <laughs> did turn the light on. I always record with my light on just because I, I don't want the light. Because you're baby monitor. scared. Yeah. Okay. I, I will say I did not real quick. I did not read any of this at night. I always read the <laughs> doing this in the day. <laughs> but so Sean. We're recording at night. True. So Sean, who was 15 to 16 years old at the time was at a friend's house, and a girl he knew brought a Ouija board. Classic teens using a Ouija board. His hands were not on it, but he was asking the questions. And he asked what his mother's birthday was, and it said it correctly. And then he asked who was present with us, and it spelled out, quote, Satan. He deemed this scary, but also exciting. And... He said, if you are who you say you are, give me a sign. Oh, no. Nothing happened right away, but Sean says he did get his sign. Throughout the night, he threw up blood red liquid of some kind, and as soon as he left the house, he just stopped throwing up. Do you think the blood red liquid was blood? It's probably Kool-Aid. Or Flavor-Aid. Oh, Gatorade. Uh You know, flavor aid is the the type of Kool Aid or the the generic brand Kool Aid that that cult used to kill themselves. Oh, really? Drink the Kool Aid. It comes okay. from the cult that I think it was Jonestown. They yeah. all drank it to mass suicide. Well, they couldn't even get name brand. Sad. Exactly right. So, Nick, circling yes. back to the story. Yes, Mister Shaw. Um, so, the mother's birthday. Mm-hmm. Getting that right is pretty interesting because presumably, you know, the friends wouldn't necessarily know their friend's mother's birthday. Right. And the girl, I believe he was just kind of acquainted with her. He wasn't like close friends with her. He just knew her. Right. But like, we've been friends for a decent few years. I don't know now. your mom's birthday. I don't know your parents' birthdays. Today's I don't think birthday. I have a guess. I was gonna say next... I might, I might know Joe's. <laughs> it's literally today. Oh, what? Happy birthday! Yeah, my dad's birthday is today. Shout out to Joe Matrenga. Oh, your sister's is on the twelfth. Close. Eleventh. Close. So when? Oh, I was I'm gonna say so when this it's the seventh. Dang it! I thought it was. Oh, it's it's not a week. I thought it was a week. Anyway. Oh, yeah, because so, yeah, yeah, like, they can't I, have their birthdays in public. Yeah, I don't know. I'll do my dad. Why not? Who cares? Yeah, my sisters. <laughs> yeah, I don't know your guys' parents' birthdays. So, like, that's kind of a weird thing to get right. Yeah. But it's also, like, how much, like, is there any proof of this story happening other than source These, trust? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. <laughs> these, are all, these are all accounts that have been relayed to Rosemary or sh- or she talked with the people herself. 
or they're documented kind of like all the ones that we talked about where the like the wives killing their husbands or the crime fighting those were all documented right but what differs between those and this one is like those didn't really have as strong of a Ouija evidence to me like it wasn't like oh it said something that only a ghost could possibly know like you know this one yeah. had uh, had some form of proof of like okay prove it you're real i will and, say the, the the crime ones were like the bootlegger and the limo thief the, it does say like the limo one it said who did it the cops went to the guy and it, it, he was the guy <laughs> okay well that one sure that that's kind of tough to just take a guess and be like oh my gosh i knew it yeah, i think his name was charles yates interesting yeah. but like you wouldn't just fake that information to be like right. oh the Ouija like you would just take credit and be like I've solved this mystery <laughs> yeah but, I don't know the, uh, the stories that we'll now be getting into are the personal experiences this is what happened to me I and then Rosemary heard about it she put it in the book or maybe Rick who is writing the book with her Rick had his own experiences that I cut from here but again if you want to get what he experienced with a an alleged native american spirit named orop you can again get the book that sounds good it was interesting but on to more devil related stories we look at uh brooks and her sister in 1979 they were playing with the ouija board with two of their friends and they asked if the devil was real. Again, typical sleepover with the girls use a Ouija board. The doorbell rang. They all went to the door. Through the door chain, they saw a very well-dressed man. And he said, is this proof enough? And that's all he said. <laughs> and he left. So, you know, the, the, the modern idea that the devil is very attractive very well dressed good looking <laughs> i that's thought that was a funny one that's a good one and then everyone screamed and then he clapped yeah. that's good yes and then he was like all right i'm out of here yeah so, then you just why well, he just like walked home yeah he, he just walked to his car and he was yeah. down the street <laughs> what car do you think it would have been probably like a porsche or something yeah well so something interesting about that that I might point out, I don't know what your guys' take is on it, but maybe that guy wasn't the devil. Maybe he was just being possessed by the devil to show them, like, hey, here's proof. I maybe. possessed this guy. And then he wakes up, he's like, what, what am I doing on this doorstep? <laughs> it's like hey, two exactly. hours of missing time. Yeah. Wait a minute. Is that what missing time is? You get possessed and you do stuff and then you just forget? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I'm We've not cracked a... the code. No, <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Checkmate ghosts. <laughs> um, our last one is follows a man named Scott Jones. Scott S K O T, by the way. What the? Don't ask me. <laughs> is it like a a nationality in Europe? I don't perhaps? know. Well, he communicated with. A, f- a favorite of mine and Frank's. Starting with a Z? So, no, 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 no. Something with an AC. 
<laughs> Let me get into this. Apparently, Scott had numerous experiences, including a an encounter with a being that was, quote, fully visual and tactile, very much the sense that the being was real. It actually took the guise of the devil, Satan, except that it had green skin and horns. Whoa. So in his neighborhood, though, growing up. <laughs> In the afternoons, it was common to play with the Ouija board just out on the asphalt. And during one session with him, two friends and um, a girl they knew used it. And the first thing that the board communicated was a name. I said, AC. Alistair Crowley. Oh, oh, wow. I can't believe I didn't pick up on that. Our favorite debaucherous. He's not our favorite. We How do you even like describe him? him? I don't want to. I don't think that'll ever be a topic for the podcast. We're not. I don't want to go there. What would you call him? Uh, An occultist? A deviant occultist. A deviant occultist. Yes. But they were getting lively actions and forceful movements, and they asked, what do you want from us? And it said from Scott, it wanted his blood, and from the girl whose name was Sue, her flesh. The board suggested they were going to get married, Sue and Scott, and produce an incarnation of Alistair Crowley. What the hell? They kept trying to end the session, but it kept saying no when they you know, tried to say goodbye. And luckily for them, the entity did not try to communicate again or manifest as anything. And that's Scott's experience. Damn. So it was too early to tell whether they would get married and have a kid? Yeah. and if. Uh, Alistair Crowley is there, was in, has been reincarnated. Imagine they have a kid and he just looks like the, uh, he's, he's born with the Fez. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll give, we'll give you listeners at home live updates on the Alistair Crowley <laughs> reincarnation. We'll, we'll put a picture of what he looks in the show notes for people. Who yeah. Don't I'm know. Funny he one is one. He is right now. the worst. He just comes out of the womb looking like this with a bald head. Yeah. So Rosemary now talks about what the communicators from the board potentially can be. So interesting. There are several types could be the dead. You could be talking to spirits. Um, could be elementals, which are described as lower astral plane entities who have the ability to shapeshift and assume any persona. So they'll, they'll find like remnants of personality of someone who's passed away and kind of put them on like like a costume that's interesting interesting and so now they they know the right things to say to convince people they are who they say they are so this includes she says familiars demons jinn which rosemary is oh, very well known for researching and fairies so those are all kinds of elementals it could also be archetypes and the shadow. Now, this is more of a psychological look at it. So archetypes are these like predispositions that aren't part of conscious thought. So some examples are birth, death, power, magic, as well as traits that are displayed by heroes or tricksters or sages, where the shadow is like a repressed side of our personality. 
and our fears are projected out and they manifest into these real entities when you are using a Ouija board. Oh no, I'm afraid of money while using a Ouija board. (laughs) (laughs) Hope it doesn't manifest. Nice. That would be, that would be very unfortunate for you. You need to go to Oak Island, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, it could also be demons could be gin or you just take it at face value the communicators are exactly who they say they are and so those are the potential communicators that Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, talks about that's really interesting I mean yeah I mean obviously the, the one other one is nothing like yeah obviously there's nothing and it's just people moving it without realizing or or purposely realizing you know you do it with friends and you want to mess with them so you're guiding it mm-hmm. obviously but that's a very like i feel like those options are pretty comprehensive right and it's like a spectrum of of possibilities and i'm sure yeah it's somewhere it's a mix of some stuff because Probably. i I personally, I'm curious what you guys personally believe if you have opinions on this and whether they're strong or, or not, you know, you're not holding on to them strongly. I don't think that if these things are real, that they are what they say they are almost ever. I don't think that you can no. contact, for example, grandma from the other side. I think or that if you ever do that, you should be very wary. There are, again, Get the book. There are two instances of people communicating with grandpa and then one where they communicated with grandma. And it wasn't grandma or grandpa. (laughs) So it's interesting, right? I mean, I was walking, I was, as I was running back here to the hotel to get here in time to record, there's a, uh, a medium has set up shop and does palm readings and like past life regressions and whatever. And the the little building is like set up to be look to look, you know, look mystical and whatever. And, you know, I can go there, pay some crazy amount of money and be told that I'm contacting my grandparents. My yeah, my grandpa's that passed away. And I feel like I would probably sometimes you would get some truthful answers. And I I hadn't really heard that theory, Nick, that she proposes that there are things that can kind of yeah take on the guise of departed people and yeah answer honestly for some like that's that's kind of scary right because you could be tricked into into thinking it really is right you're getting some proof but yeah it is like make-believe it's it's trying to trick you trying to deceive you that's scary it makes me yes like never ever want to even try to do any sort of medium reading or or past life regression i feel like i never will not even for fun right like you just feel like you can't trust it nope it's either fake and you're wasting your money or you might just be deceived and it could lead to worse things that's my that's my opinion on it yeah what do i think about like the past life stuff or just what's coming through the board when people are talking mm. to it, like what's communicating to the people using the board? 
Well, I I think I'm on Frank's side with this that it's people moving it or moving it to what they want to hear subconscious or conscious um because i mean in some instances i guess a spirit or something could interact with the board but at that rate if they wanted to make themselves known they would have done so through other means like oh i'm an evil spirit let me throw a book at you and not like tell you to kill someone (laughs) (laughs) but like then that goes into that but that goes into the whole like trickster thing they want you to like ruin your life i mean i guess so but it's comical to them yeah but i feel like i feel like they would gaslight you first just to get like a little bit like like oh no you're going crazy like make you think you're going crazy and then when you're Mm -hmm. vulnerable that's true you know Good point. I don't know. I'm not a firm believer myself, but I also won't touch them. Like, I know I have the quote unquote Ouija board (laughs) from Home Goods, but I don't have the the planchette and I don't plan to. You don't plan to have Chet over. Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't need to be contacting Chet and then start throwing up blood. Okay, but then you're basically saying that. You do believe in it a little bit. You can't say both things. No, I I believe that there is nothing, but I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> because <laughs> it's worse. Yeah, yeah. It, it's worse to plead ignorance than it is to be wrong. He's uh I respect he's that. hedging That's his fair. bets. Yeah. But we'll get we have five more stories left. Five more? We're in we're in the home stretch. Here, cut this out. I'll skip. I'll skip one because one's not as. Uh, yeah, I'm fine. Fair enough. Whatever. One's not as good as the other, and it and it's the longer one of these like shadow people ones. So we'll do shadow people. One other story about some really funky stuff, and then the vampires, and then that's it. Vampires Great. is kind of long though. Just I'm, do it. I mean, I'm fine with it, but I'm gonna go get a drink. But you can keep talking. All right. I'm just gonna be AFK. Cracks. Yeah, Frank, this is gonna be a long one. Sorry. That's yeah, so no, it's all good. Good one though, right? Yeah, it's great. No, it's like, I'm I'm gonna listen to this at night, like on the drive. See how spooky it is. I I have the <laughs> lights on. There you go. I know. But all right. So now we're gonna get into stories where people using the board experience or have encounters with shadow people, which are a pretty well known paranormal uh phenomena. So first story goes or covers a woman named Nikki who played with a Ouija board in high school with her friends and they took it out with them every weekend. So if they went out, they brought the Ouija board (laughs) and weird to to make matters worse. uh, She dabbled in witchcraft or Wicca. And she says that she had a spirit friend named Johnny. But Johnny would not communicate if her hand was on the board. He said it was because Nikki had negative energy. <laughs> She's toxic. Right. But funny enough, so this is, this is going to be some hot chaff, but she would say a prayer, quote, for my angels 
to protect me every time we had the board around. The the my angels is the uh, interesting real kicker right there about yeah. No one has any. You don't own an angel <laughs> necessarily. Yeah. But anyway, so creepy things started happening to Nikki and her friends. They would have horrible nightmares. The feeling that something was holding them down while they were sleeping and they couldn't call out. So sleep paralysis was some old hag syndrome in there. And they would see shadows and flickering lights. So naturally, Nikki turned to God and her angels and quit practicing Wicca. But now, Nikki says she has a connection with the angelic realm. She practices speaking with her angels and has been told several times she will eventually be a, quote, angel lady who will communicate with others' angels and pass along messages. And she says that she knows her house is full of spirits and she may even have fairies and gnomes. Maybe so that's she. Nikki. Maybe she can tell us how to change the color of the gnomes attire. <laughs> maybe, maybe the angels will tell her. So, that's, that's always like, oh. <laughs> so first, that's a lot going on. Like the fairies and gnomes being thrown in at the end. That's a lot to be happy. <laughs> yeah, like you, you already said that you practice witchcraft and Wicca, but also pray to angels. And now you're an angel lady. Plus you have fairies and gnomes. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like a lot going on. It seems I will say to your point of oh, no one owns angels. That's true. However, people have specific angels assigned to them. Like you know the idea of guardian angels. Well, yeah, like in the in the Catholic like upbringing, you do have a guardian angel, and yeah, I don't know how that translates to wicked. Contrary to popular belief, it's not a family member. Humans can't become angels. That doesn't mean they're not looking, your family isn't looking over you, but they're not angels. But yeah, but the, the plural is what got me, like my angels, like who is like Archangel Michael and Gabriel, just like, yeah, Nikki, you know, we got you. It's always, that's always what people say. If people are into like, you know, new age stuff, they always are buddy, buddy with Archangel Michael. It's always. Yeah. And it's like, always yeah, him. I, he, he's I not see him nice. in the background of every room. <laughs> It's, yeah. Well, he's nice, but he's he's like the warrior. He's not. Yeah, he wouldn't be hanging out with random crazy ladies. <laughs> no, maybe Gabriel. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Isn't Gabriel but, supposed to be like the messenger? So yeah, kind of makes sense. Like I don't know, and I don't know what Raphael does. And then we don't talk about the fourth one. There is Raphael a Ninja Turtle. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he does. The fourth <laughs> one isn't that Donatello? Yeah, yeah the fourth right, archangel is Donatello. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, a lot of, like Aaron said, there's a lot in there. There's a slice of the whole, there, like she has the whole supernatural pie in there. Yeah. Like I feel like if I was going to make up a story, I wouldn't throw in so many crazy things. I would make it as mundane as possible Yeah, to maintain believability. Yeah. Like the angel lady, like what, what? Like if you stopped before she started praying to angels, I'd be like, okay, I could maybe see that. but. Then you start throwing in all this stuff, and I'm like, okay, you're just you just want attention. Yeah, there's a lot of it's a it's a bit too crazy. Um, we also have a story from Trish, who 
1993 was uh, living in a haunted house in Pittsburgh, and she was 28 at the time. So also just as a preface, they after a few beers, so they were drinking. Her boyfriend and her had another couple over and they decided to use a Ouija board. Her best friend was recently murdered and they wanted to try to contact her. So the board ended up just spelling out nonsense and the group laughed at it and called the board phony. Promptly, the room's temperature plunged and Trish glanced up and she and the others saw standing along one wall were three tall, solid black figures that looked like three dimensional shadows. They had a human-like shape, but were, quote, weird looking. One of the three wore a top hat, but everything was in black silhouette. There were no details, no features, and no eyes. Naturally, the group all screamed and evacuated the house. And after calming down a bit, they went back inside, turned on all of the lights, and found no trace of shadow people or anyone in the house. That story gave me deja vu. I wonder, maybe that was weird. It gave me a weird, weird feeling. It's very spooky. Very spooky. See, you know, with something like that, the fact that they all saw the same thing kind of, kind of, obviously, it's just secondhand information of, oh, do we believe them? Right. But from a story perspective it seems pretty believable that what they experienced was true and even after like a few beers like i don't know about you i'm not drunk after two beers <laughs> you know you're not seeing yeah, shadow people even, after two beers no <laughs> even so like to all see the same thing and to all hallucinate the exact same thing that's yeah. pretty unlikely right so i want to do a quick little sidebar before we get into the final two stories here there was a chapter about something frank and i and i think aaron you've just kind of heard from us talking probably about, about the zozo phenomenon no actually tldr this entity <laughs> named zozo comes through the boards a lot of trouble happens when that occurs and she has a whole chapter on it and she actually talks about uh, Darren Evans, I think his name was. So Frank, you'll remember that is he had a friend that forgot to bring the correct sage. <gasps> oh my oh, goodness! Was it Steve, that. the friend? Yes, yes. I remember Steve. that. Never trust so, Steve. He always forgets the, the right ghost hunting the, or uh, equipment. If if you're more interested in this in particular, and this phenomenon is very dark and concerning for me. Rosemary Ellen Guiley and a man named Darren Evans wrote a book together called The Zozo Phenomenon. So if you want, if you are interested in that, go check that out as well. Frank and I are familiar with the main story from that book. But if you want more details, check it out. So our penultimate story follows a woman named Kelly Weaver in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. She used to play with the Ouija board as a teen with her cousin, Karen, and Karen was going to Florida for vacation and was told by the board she would meet a boy on a bike and they would spend time together. Turns out when she was on vacation, she met a boy on a bike and they hung out at the beach. Eh, that could <laughs> just happen, but interesting enough. 
But then Kelly kind of thinks about, well, when I lived in Pennsylvania, closet doors open and shut on their own in my bedroom. So she thinks, did, did I bring someone home with me? Uh-oh. Was it because of shadow people? My sister and I were going up, it, up and down the stairs. So she had experiences in the house she grew up in as well. And she thinks that maybe using the board was a reason for that. But now fast forward, Kelly is in college. She went to a private art school and lived in a quote haunted house again with five other girls. So six girls, college, haunted house, Ouija boards. This is a bad 90s horror movie. Yeah. So they would hear people climbing the stairs when no one was there. The basement door would burst open on its own more than once. So they ended up putting one of those like metal folding chairs in front to keep it shut. <laughs> Strange images would appear in her bedroom mirror. Frank, oh. can't wait till you're back home. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> or tonight. And voice, voices could be heard when no one else was around. And several of the girls wouldn't stay in the house alone. But to Kelly, this was normal because she grew up in her own haunted house and the girls named the ghost George. So this is when the goat, when she's in college. One day the mailman knocks on their door in the afternoon and tells the girls to be careful. And the place was haunted. And they, and Kelly asks, how do you know? And the mailman says, I used to live here when I was a boy and weird things went on. Just be careful. Jamie, who's one of Kelly's roommates, heard the conversation and decided that they should play with the Ouija board that evening and try to make contact with George. And guess when they did that? Halloween night. Nice. <laughs> this, is the, this is a movie. Can't Great make this timing. up. So that evening, they gathered, they lit candles, played some Pink Floyd, you know, really got the mood uh, in the right place. They started asking... Is there anyone here who wants to talk to us? The planchette took off, spelling out different names. They asked, what about George? Is he here with us? N-O. Well, then who are we speaking to? The board then started spelling out foul language, and the basement door burst open on its own with so much force that her roommates Penny and Yvonne screamed and ran up the stairs so fast that Kelly described it as comical. <laughs> so there's this the I'm right. sorry to interject. No, you're good. The basement door was shut with the metal chair. It does not say if the folding chair was in front of the door. It just says that the basement door burst open. I'm assuming it was closed, but it doesn't say the chair was there. Okay. In this instance, I will say. Okay. But noises started coming from the basement, but no one was brave enough to go see who or what was making the noises. And then Kelly glanced over at the heat vent on the floor and she said what she saw scared her so much that she refused to ever touch the quote so-called game ever again. She saw two red eyes staring back at her through the grates and Jamie and her roommate Heidi saw them too. Heidi was so scared that she stayed at her boyfriend's house for the weekend. But Jamie wanted more. Strange gurgling sounds came from the vent. And, she, and Kelly was so petrified 
that she found a Christian music station and blared the music as loud as it would go. Jamie thought everyone was being stupid, so she picked up the board and took it to her room. Her roommate, Marianne, and her locked themselves in their room with church music playing all night, and they didn't sleep. They never ventured into the basement that night after Halloween and refused to look at the heat vents. She continued to live in the house for the next two years, but she never felt quite alone. Strange noises continued, objects were moved around, and the basement door still had a mind of its own. Whoa. Whoa. I was looking around my room for any, any vents. Just to make sure. What I you're guess you that. can say he vented. <laughs> <laughs> George Sus. George Sus. Living in a in a haunted house. No. We did. It was haunted by our downstairs neighbors. Oh, the gallon. That's good. That was good. I will say, yeah. our, in our apartment, things would like fall off shelves a lot. Just saying. Yeah, I don't that? think that was. I think that might have just been the house was. Was not it poorly built, but like yeah, the house some was sideways. Might not yeah. have been level. We did have yeah. a defense against the painting the house role for a while. True, maybe the ghosts were trying to keep the painters away. Yeah, maybe but, the um, spirit of the painter that passed away was not done with his job. They wanted to paint the insides red. <laughs> <laughs> Good uh, movie. That's Frank. A, sell it, Frank. Uh, there's a vent underneath your microwave, so you're welcome. Imagine we see in the background of my video like a hand coming out from underneath the microwave. That'd be crazy. I wouldn't tell you. Oh, Thanks. wait, you can see yourself. Dang it. But so, yeah, that was an interesting story. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Reg, I didn't see it when I turned around. I only saw it in the video. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. But I think that one was interesting because we all lived in a house together in college. hundred percent. I can, um, I can like picture that in my head. I could see like the scene, you know? Yep. Creepy. So really interesting. Now our final story for the night, a choir of vampires. In 1970 to 1971 in Connecticut, two 16 year old high school girls took up the Ouija board for excitement and sent out an open call into the ether. Someone answered. Devin introduced himself as a vampire and established a rapport with Anne and Mary, the two women, or the two girls, I guess, at the time. They became enthralled by Devin, but Anne would eventually, to show, would eventually show to have a unique connection with him. Kind of going back to Nikki with her witchcraft and Wicca, Anne had been raised in a home where working in the occult was totally normal. And this probably played a large part in her ability to attract attention from unseen entities. It's described that Anne was physically open and her mother was involved with, in witchcraft and had raised Anne with a host of magical practices and objects. Anne kept a chest in her bedroom that was full of magical objects, including, quote, luckies or amulets and wax figurines, a.k.a. poppets, for casting spells. So already going into some interesting territory. Devin 
the vampire, relayed that he and Anne had been deeply in love in a past life and that he was pleased to have reconnected with her, with her through the Ouija. Oh, no. In 18th century England, Devin had been cursed into becoming a vampire by another man jealous of their love affair. Devin told the girls that he had fed on Anne in that life, and while he did not intend to fatally drain her, he was unfortunately unable to stop himself in time to keep her alive. Now reunited, Devin was physically manifesting in Anne's room when she was alone at night, and she allowed him to drink her blood. Devin was described as a man of average height and looks with brown hair. A bit like Barnabas Collins, who is a vampire on a show back then called Dark Shadows. He had canine fangs and sucked up blood through his teeth as if they were straws. Anne would often disappear into the night for long periods of time without anyone knowing where she had gone or what she was up to. And Mary told a girl she knew, who was named Eva, what was happening. And Eva was 15 at the time. Eva was a devout Christian and didn't really understand why Mary told her about the occult activities. But Eva eventually joined the girls' Ouija sessions, although Anne was reluctant at first. They spent the night at Anne's house and played with the board. Devin came through as expected and entertained the girls with stories of his past life. Anne went to bed, and as Mary and Eva were about to do the same, they heard thumping coming from Anne's room. The girls opened the door to see a small alarm clock hurling directly at Anne from the opposite of her bedroom. She was alone in the room, and the alarm clock landed perfectly right side up. Devin introduced the girls to other vampires who were collectively known as the Vampire Choir. They believed they were speaking to several distinct personalities, each having their own individual quirks and characteristics. Gifts would materialize in a bowl meant for that very purpose in Anne's room, very Bell Witch. Jonathan Ferris, who was, a na- uh, was the name an entity went by, came to Anne and told her that he was interested in her friend Eva. And they began to have regular conversations through the board, and Jonathan would leave gifts, gifts for Eva in Anne's gift bowl. Eva was spending the night at Anne's one time, and while laying in their beds, Eva heard a strange popping noise, followed by slurping sounds. Anne fell silent as they were just talking, with the lights off, laying in bed, as you do when you have a sleepover and did not respond when Eva tried to engage her in further conversation. After gathering the will to turn on the lights, she found Anne covered in blood with two puncture holes in her neck. Anne allegedly suffered from further possessions by Devin himself and by Anne's 18th century self, the woman Devin had originally known and loved all those years ago in England. Anne claimed that this version of herself, who shared the same first name, took over her permanently. And sometimes, Devin possessed her at school so that, she could expe- so that he could experience being in her body. Mind you, she's 16. The girls invited several more teenagers into the fold for some additional safety. This included four girls and three boys. And let me tell you, you couldn't pick a worse group of people. 
Oh, good. Some of the newcomers were involved in spell casting and conjuring. Some used drugs. And one of the boys tried to conjure demons. So, a, a great cast of, you know, a lot of, a lot of safety here. The group tried spell casting in attempts to gain control of Devin and the Vampire Choir. Probably didn't go so well. When the group worked the board, weird noises would emanate all around them. Items would materialize out of thin air and be hurled at the participant. Rapping sounds on the walls would be around the room, each wall in quick su succession. The participants would be tapped on the head by unseen hands, bits of newspaper were mysteriously crumpled up and thrown at them from nowhere, and bed slats were banged. Anne was, going, Anne was going under possession when suddenly a tape recorder on the other side of the room erupted with wild laughter. Eventually, the lives of Anne, Mary, and Eva were threatened by the vampire choir. It was said that they were all supposed to die at the same hour while at school. And while the threats never came to pass, the fear remained. Strange events began to center around Eva as well, when other members of the group weren't even present. Poltergeist phenomena erupted in her own home. A bust of Napoleon's wife, Josephine, which sat in the family home, was found repeatedly in the mornings, turned completely around facing the wall. Devin would claim responsibility, saying the statue offended him. Because the French and English were at odds, so I can respect them there. <laughs> <laughs> what? And the most terrifying of all was an invasion of bats that occurred at her home. They were found in the fireplace, in the basement, and even in the canopy of Eva's bed. But the chimney was closed off, so they couldn't have gotten in through there. She would refuse to sleep in the dark at night and took a Bible and amulets with her to bed. Eva discussed her issues with a Christian friend of hers and was told she would need an exorcism. Now, Frank and Aaron. Who do you think she turned to for an exorcism? I'd like to think. Frank. And <laughs> uh, trained. I said Frank. Frank. <laughs> I'd like to think a trained professional, like a, uh, say, a Catholic priest. Nope. Pentecostals. So she turned no to the Pentecostal faith and went through two exorcism rituals. Tension and trouble escalated to the point where the group ended up breaking up. Graduation came. The participants went their separate ways. Eva went to college in Minnesota in it and endured a third Pentecostal exorcism there. Eva had her final experience in college where her roommate one night saw a shadowy figure of a man looming over her bed. Anne and Mary did not talk about their experiences, and one boy from the group went missing, another committed suicide, and a third drifted about aimlessly, whatever that means. Anne later got married, and her and her husband came to visit Eva. Anne's husband asked how much Eva knew about Anne's old boyfriend, Devin. Eva blurted that Devin was not human. Much to her husband's or Anne's husband's shock. He said Anne had often talked about vampires and an older man named Devin, whom she had dated. And for Eva, 
religion did not offer the fix it promised. She said that her solution came when she summoned her own inner strength to push back the influences and to cut all connection to the paranormal. Wow. Well, good for her for doing that in the end. That. What do you make of that? What the hell? See, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing a fine line of, wow, there's so much going on. This is hard to believe it's not true versus, wow, there's so much going on. This can't possibly be true. And I don't know which side of the line we're, we're writing on here. Yeah. If you take the story at face value, though, I'm sure like the people involved think it's true. Right. Like it's not that hard to imagine a little 16 year old girl in that period of life thinking like that she is dating a vampire spirit of an older man that has a past and life with her. Like funny enough that that show that's I just mentioned dramatic enough. Dark Shadows. Yeah. Was a show that the girls watched. So my thought is they did interact with things, but because they were so enamored by this like vampire show. They it manifested subconsciously as vampires. So it is because a lot of weird stuff happened, right? And yeah, they could have made everything up. But if they were all interested in vampires, it makes sense that if they did experience something, they would view it as vampires. Kind of like, you know, when religious people have an experience, it's demons or it's angels. Same idea. That's interesting. I think you have to take a step back and think like, yeah, if there are non-human spirits. Oh, Nick, you're making a face. Did you miss something? Okay. If there are non-human spirits, they'd probably be able to lie just as much as we can, right? We're able to lie to our heart's content. We as humans, we're able to have every single thing we say be a lie, right? That's not particularly hard or rare. So you know, I think you have to apply that same logic to anything that can communicate. Right. So I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say like, yeah, there's something that's messing with these young girls that are, you know, in a very influential time of their life to get a kick. At. Like you, I feel like I can imagine it's going to sound crazy, you know, a bunch of buddies in a different dimension getting the kick out of messing with these girls, messing with mm-hmm. these kids, right? And they're like, watch this, watch this. Yeah, this is like, you know, the way I'm going to interpret it is like, watch this. You know, I'm going to be a vamp. I'm going to be a yeah, vampire yeah. and put my teeth in this girl and suck her blood. Yeah. And they're like, hey, you, you're going to be my vampire buddy. Let's come on, come on, let's do it, let's do it. And however oh they're, you it's know, supernatural and practical jokers. Yeah. I feel like that's, I always, I feel like a sense of that, right? Because otherwise it's too ridiculous. Kind of like Aaron, what you said, it's, it's like so much stuff. It's I like you were gonna say, kind of like Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> like okay. <laughs> it's like anyway. Yeah, yeah. What do you what do you think, Aaron? I don't know. See, the tricky part is, I don't think the Ouija board, and this is gonna be my overall take for the episode. I don't think the Ouija board is anything special. I think it's the belief that someone puts into it. It's almost it acts as a vessel like because everyone's like, oh, these things are real. They 
put so much belief into it that it is able to reach the spirits or cause something to elicit a reaction out of something or someone. And it's the power of belief that really is able to contact spirits or devils or demons or whatever. Um, like you could probably use a piece of paper and doodle um, a yes or no on there and say, oh, I've got I've got this thing, guys, and it, it's worked hundreds of times. And as long as you are convinced that it works, you'll probably experience something. Frank's shaking or er, nodding his head. Yeah, I mean, that's. Yeah, I think it's a fair take. I mean, yeah, I mean, what is special about a Ouija board, right? Is the name? Yeah, it's not like the name is special. I mean, it's a cool, weird name. Trademarked. Trademarked, true. Ouija, trademarked. Ghost, ghosts care about trademarks, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I think you're right that, you know, maybe a skeptic that goes in being like, this is dumb, is going to come out saying, well, this is dumb. But uh, but vice versa. Yeah. So like so I mean, Aaron, do you agree with that? Do you think if someone comes in and they're a complete non-believer, there's just nothing, nothing's gonna happen? Or do you think yeah, it's possible? I mean I think with the Ouija with Ouija boards in particular, if there's a strong sense of belief, even in the room, because like, you know, we've seen and heard of people who are not strong believers in the paranormal or supernatural and still have an experience. True. So, you know, it's not like hundred percent of the time this is true, but I'd say it's a good tendency that the amount of belief you have in something, the more likely it is to manifest itself. I agree. I think like whether you believe in it or not, these people are experiencing something. Right. Yeah. I mean, sure, they could be making it up, but it feels like a lot <laughs> to, to make it, this all up. Yeah, it's a lot of effort to go through to make it all up. And for what? Yeah. Us telling a story on a podcast to... Exactly. Our friends and David Hoy, who's <laughs> our most valued mega super fan exactly i mean it's pretty easy to convince yourself of things right like we, we yeah. all go about deceiving ourselves like day by day to to get through life you know convincing yourself you're qualified for something you're not in order to you know get there or convincing yourself you're you know you're a chad you know like uh yeah you know, like, like that's not crazy. So I, I don't think it's that hard to convince yourself that you're experiencing weird things, whether or not it then makes you experience actual things is separate. But I think it's, I think the case where people just make things up and they don't believe it is pretty rare. I think pretty much in general, people believe that they're experiencing something, you know? Should I read the thing or no? Yeah, just close it out right. and then pivot into that. I mean, whatever, you know, right. your closing statements. Right. 
So that is our tale of the Ouija with its history and many stories. And I'm sure there are more. Oh, this is a great place to say this, actually, because I was talking to my mom about it. She apparently used a Ouija board when she was a kid back in, in high school. She That's doesn't remember anything about it, but she said she used a Ouija board or someone she knew used it while she was there and she had she wanted nothing to do with it. But I think my aunts too. It was like in every house in like the 80s. Like everyone just had had one. 70s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Aaron, do you want to give a teaser of what next week is going to be? Uh, yeah. I mean, I alluded to it last episode, but uh, any further details you want to give? Yeah, so I'll be looking into a tale that you guys probably know pretty well, um, because we actually, this is a past investigation of ours way back in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will be telling the tale of the Jersey Devil. And it will be an exciting episode. I hope so. Because there's... A lot of history and a lot of craziness behind the story. Oh, yeah. It's a fun one. Very fun. Very spooky. But that's all for tonight's show. Remember to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you tune in to enjoy the show. Please submit feedback on the website, Wednesday at 9pm.com slash 15. And again, that's Wednesday at N-I-N-E P-M slash 15. You'll also find the episode's write-up, images, locations, and references listed there if you want to dig deeper. And again, I encourage you to please look at Rosemary Ellen Guiley's work, this book, or the Zozo Phenomenon book, which delves more into that topic in particular. Please leave a review as well, wherever you listen. And tell your friends to tune in. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 9 p.m. And remember, stay inside and be careful who you communicate with. Seventy-one, seventy-nine, seventy-nine, sixty-eight, sixty-six, eighty-nine, sixty-nine.